What chapter are we on, boo-boo? <laughs> We're on chapter 28, which is an even chapter. Oh! In my book, it says uh, volume three, chapter two, which is also <laughs> an, even, an cha- even chapter. Yep, that's yeah. for me. That's the beauty of the every other pattern. It's great. It stays consistent. Welcome to Womance's Public Access, Charlotte Bronte, Jane Eyre Read Along. I am one of your hosts, Isabeau. I read the even chapters as discussed. I am your Odd Chapters host, Morgan. Excellent. Where did we leave off last time, Morgan? Oh, boy. Well, uh, Jane and Rochester had to talk about what was going on, and Rochester basically had uh, an accurately verbose breakdown to Jane, um, but she stayed... uh, firm in her belief that she should leave him and so she did after their conversation she went up to her bedroom and she decided now's the time she had a vision of her mother as the moon again telling her beat it sister and so she did she uh departed with just a few belongings some cash uh to see what the world may hold for her. Went the opposite direction of Milcott. I think that's it. That's exactly right. Uh, for those of you who decided to skip over the two-hour slog of Rochester blaming Jane and everyone but himself for his bad actions, uh, that is a perfect summation of that sojourn of a chapter. <laughs> Guys, please go back and listen to it. I had to work really hard on it. <laughs> Someone should listen to it. Okay. It's really good. All right. Chapter 28. Two days are past. It is a summer evening. The coachman has set me down at a place called Whitcross. He could take me no further for the sum I had given, and I was not possessed of another shilling in the world. The coach is a mile off by this time. I am alone. This moment I discover that I forgot to take my parcel out of the pocket of the coach where I had placed it for safety. There it remains. There it must remain. And now I am absolutely destitute. It's nice to know that uh, the problems of leaving your phone in an Uber date back to the 1840s. Yeah, I remember when cell phones first became a thing and people were like, oh, how are horror movies going to exist now? And it's like, oh, it's so easy to to remove you from your cell phone. Don't worry. We got it. (laughs) Whitcross is no town, nor even a hamlet. It is about a stone pillar set up where four roads meet, whitewashed, I suppose, to be more obvious at a distance and in darkness. Four arms spring from its summit. The nearest town to which this, these point is, according to the inscription, distant 10 miles, the farthest above 20. From the well-known names of these towns, I learn in what county I have lighted. A North Midland Shire, dusk with moorland, ridged with mountain. This I see. There are great moors behind and on each hand of me, and there are waves of mountains far beyond the deep valley at my feet. The population here must be thin, and I see no passengers on these roads. They stretch out east, west, north, and south. White, 
broad, lonely, they are all cut in the moor, and the heather grows deep and wild to, the, to their very verge. Yet a chance traveler might pass by, and I wish no eye to see me now. Strangers would wonder what I am doing, lingering here at the signpost, evidently objectless and lost. I might be questioned. I could give no answer, but what would sound incredible and excite suspicion? Not a tie holds me to human society at this moment. Not a charm or hope calls me where my fellow creatures are. None that saw me would have a kind thought or a good wish for me. I have no relative but the universal mother, nature. I will seek her breast and ask repose. It's weird that we're so resolutely in present tense. I feel like we've been in past tense before. Yeah, in the, in the last chapter, she we commented on it. She was definitely reflecting on what had been. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. And it kind of, a lot of the movie adaptations will start with a framing device of her having left. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. We're forever helping out the high school book report. <laughs> I stuck straight into the heath. I held on to a hollow I saw deeply furrowing the brown moor side. I waded knee-deep in its dark growth. I turned with its turnings and finding a moss-blackened granite crag in a hidden angle, I sat down under it. High banks of moor were about me. The crag protected my head. The sky was over that. Some time passed before I felt tranquil even here. I had a vague dread that wild cattle might be near or that some sportsman or poacher might discover me. If a gust of wind swept the waste, I looked up, fearing it was the rush of a bull. If a plover whistled, I imagined it a man. Finding my apprehensions unfounded, however, and calmed by the deep silence that reigned as evening declined to nightfall, I took confidence. As yet I had not thought, I had only listened, watched, dreaded. Now I regained the faculty of reflection. What was I to do? Where to go? Oh, intolerable questions when I could do nothing and go nowhere. What a long way must yet be measured by my weary, trembling limbs before I could reach human habitation, when cold charity must be entreated before I could get a lodging, reluctant sympathy importuned, almost certain repulse incurred before my tale could be listened to, or one of my wants relieved. I touched the heath. It was dry and yet warm with the heat of the summer day. I looked at the sky. It was pure. Kindly star twinkled just above the chasm, the chasm ridge. The dew fell, but with propitious softness. No breeze whispered. Nature seemed to me benign and good. I thought she loved me, outcast as I was, and I, who from man could anticipate only mistrust, rejection, insult, clung to her with filial fondness. Tonight, at least, I could be her guest, as I was her child. My mother would lodge me without money and without price. I had one morsel of bread yet, the remnant of a roll I had bought in a town we passed through at noon, with a stray penny, my last coin. I saw ripe bilberries gleaming here and there like jet beads in the heath. I gathered a handful and eat them with bread. My hunger sharp before was, if not satisfied, appeased by this hermit's meal. I said my evening prayers at its conclusion and then chose my couch. Beside the crag, the heath was very deep. When I lay down, my feet were buried in it. Rising high on each side, it left only a narrow space for the night air to invade. I folded my shawl double and spread it over me for a coverlet. 
A low, mossy swell was my pillow. Thus lodged, I was not, at least, at the commencement of the night, cold. (laughs) My rest might have been blissful enough. Only a sad heart broke it. It plained of its gaping wounds, its inward bleeding, its riven cords. It trembled for Mr. Rochester and his doom. It bemoaned him with bitter pity. It demanded him with ceaseless longing and impotent as a bird with both wings broken. It still quivered its shattered pinions in vain attempts to seek him. I feel like a Midwest emo band is definitely going to rip off this recording and use it as an intro. Shattered Pinions? I would 100% listen to that band. Worn out with this torture of thought, I rose to my knees. Night was come and her planets were risen, a safe still night, too serene for the companionship of fear. We know that God is everywhere, but certainly we feel his presence most when his works are on the grandest scale spread before us, and it is in the unclouded night sky where his worlds wheel their silent course that we read clearest his infinitude, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. I had risen to my knees to pray for Mr. Rochester. Looking up, I, with tear-dimmed eyes, saw the mighty Milky Way. Remembering what it was, what countless systems were swept space like a soft trace of light, I felt the might and strength of God. Sure was I of his efficiency to save what he had made. Convinced I grew that neither earth should perish nor one of the souls it treasured. I turned my prayer to thanksgiving. The source of life was also the savior of spirits. Mr. Rochester was safe. He was God's, and by God would he be guarded. I again nestled to the breast of the hill and ere long in sleep forgot sorrow. What about Bertha Mason? Not not on her knees for Bertha Mason, also God's creature. But next day, want came to me, pale and bare, longing after the little birds had left their nests, long after bees had come in the sweet prime of day to gather the heath honey before the dew was dried, when the long morning shadows were curtailed and the sun filled earth and sky. I got up and looked around me. What a still, hot, perfect day! What a golden desert, the spreading moor. Everywhere sunshine. I wish I could live in it and on it. I saw a lizard run over the crag. I saw a bee busy among the sweet bilberries. I would fain at the moment have become bee or lizard, that I might have found fitting nutriment. Permanent shelter here. But I was a human being, and had human beings' wants. I must not linger where there was nothing to supply them. I rose. I looked back at the bed I had left, hopeless of the future. I wished but this, that my maker had that night thought good to require my soul of me while I slept, and that this weary frame, absolved by death (laughs) from further conflict with fate, had now but to decay quietly and mingle in peace with the soil of this wilderness. Life, however, was yet in my possession, with all its requirements and pains and responsibilities. The burden must be carried, the want provided for, the suffering endured, the responsibility fulfilled. I set out. What a perfect example of purple prose. (laughs) It is. Saying so much while saying nothing. Like, what is the want that can't be fulfilled by this beautiful nature where you can eat stuff? 
Yeah. I think this is a pretty good explanation um, of that feeling that you have sometimes. I don't know if you have it. I have it sometimes where it's like, I don't want to die exactly. I just kind of want to quit this moment and come back to it after a cessation. Yeah. Hashtag relatable. (laughs) That's good pod content. Keep it up, Isabel. You're welcome. That's what I'm here for. With cross regained, I followed a road which led from the sun, now fervent and high. By no other circumstance had I had I will to decide my choice. I walked a long time, and when I thought I had nearly done enough, and might conscientiously yield to the fatigue that almost overpowered me, might relax this forced action, and sitting down on a stone I saw near, submit resistlessly to the apathy that clogged heart and limb, I heard a bell chime, a church bell. I turned in the direction of the sound, and there, amongst the romantic hills, whose changes in aspect I had ceased to note an hour ago, I saw a hamlet and a spire. All the valley at my right hand was full of pasture fields and cornfields and wood, and a glittering stream ran zigzag through the varied shades of green. The mellowing grain, the somber woodland, the clear and sunny lee, recalled by the rumbling of wheels to the road before me, I saw a heavily laden wagon laboring up the hill, and not far behind were two cows and their drover human life and human labor were near (laughs) and so they must be i must struggle on (laughs) i must struggle on strive to live and bend to toil like the rest i didn't even need to editorialize jane got it for me (laughs) bend to toil like the rest about two o'clock p.m does she have a clock what's happening I entered the village. She can read the sun, where Mm. the sun is in the sky. That's right. My bad. At the bottom of its one street. You can critique a lot, but not her ability to tell time. (laughs) That is not where I'm allowed to get off the station. (laughs) There was a little shop with some cakes of bread in the window. I coveted a cake of bread. With that refreshing... Say it hornier. (laughs) She's horny for it. She's hungry. (laughs) With that refreshment, I could perhaps regain a degree of energy. Without it, it would be difficult to proceed. The wish to give me cake, or I'm gonna die. (laughs) The wish to have some strength and some vigor returned to me as soon as I was amongst my fellow beings. I felt it would be degrading to faint with hunger on the causeway of a hamlet. Had I nothing about me I could offer in exchange for one of these rolls? I considered. I had a small silk handkerchief tied round my throat. I had my gloves. I could hardly tell how men and women in extremities of destitution proceeded. I did not know whether either of these articles would be accepted. Probably they would not, but I must try. Jane did not think this through. (laughs) Reader, she did not. I entered the shop. A woman was there. Seeing a respectably dressed person, a lady as she supposed, she came forward with civility. How could she serve me? I was seized with shame. My tongue would not utter the request I had prepared. I dared not offer her the half-worn gloves, the creased handkerchief. Besides, I felt it would be absurd. I only begged permission to sit down a moment as I was tired. Disappointed in the expectation of a customer, she coolly acceded to my request. She pointed to a seat. I sank into it. I felt sorely urged to weep, but conscious how unseasonable such a manifestation would be, I restrained it. Soon I asked her, 
if there were any dressmaker or plain workwoman in the village. Yes, two or three, quite as many as there are there was employment for. I reflected. I was driven to the point now. I was brought face to face with necessity. I stood in the position of one without a resource, without a friend, without a coin. I must do something. What? I must apply somewhere. Where? Did she know of any place in the neighborhood where a servant was wanted? Nay, she couldn't say. What was the chief trade of this place? What did most of the people do? Some were farm laborers. A good deal worked at Mr. Oliver's needle factory and at the foundry. Did Mr. Oliver employ women? Nay, it was men's work. And what do the women do? I know not, was the answer. Some does one thing and some another. Poor folk mun get on as they can. She seemed to be tired of my questions, and indeed, what claim had I to importune her? A neighbor or two came in. My chair was evidently wanted. I took leave. I passed up the street, looking as I went at all the houses to the right hand and to the left, but I could discover no pretext, nor see an inducement to enter any. I rambled round the hamlet, going sometimes to a little distance and returning again for an hour or more, much exhausted and suffering greatly now for want of food. I turned aside into a lane and sat down under the hedge. Ere many minutes had elapsed, I was again on my feet, however, and again searching something, a resource, or at least an informant. A pretty little house stood at the top of the lane with a garden before it, exquisitely neat and brilliantly blooming. I stopped at it. What business had I to approach the white door or touch the glittering knocker? In what way could it possibly be the interest of the inhabitants of that dwelling to serve me? Yet I drew near and knocked. A mild-looking, cleanly attired young woman opened the door. In such a voice as might be expected, from a hopeless heart and fainting frame, a voice wretchedly low and faltering, I asked if a servant was wanted here. No, said she. We do not keep a servant. Can you tell me where I could get employment of any kind? I continued. I am a stranger, without acquaintance in this place. I want some work, no matter what. But it was not her business to think for me, or seek a place for me. Besides, in her eyes, how doubtful must have appeared my character, position, tale. She shook her head. She was sorry she could give me no information, and the white door closed, quite gently and civilly. But it shut me out. She had held it open a little longer. I believe I could have begged a piece of bread, for I was now brought low could not bear to return to the sordid village where besides no prospect of aid was visible. I should have longed rather to deviate to a wood I saw not far off, which appeared in its thick shade to offer inviting shelter. But I was so sick, so weak, so gnawed with nature's cravings, instinct kept me roaming round abodes where there was a chance of food. Solitude would be no solitude, rest no rest, while the vulture hunger thus sank beaks and talons in my side." I drew near houses, I left them, came back again, and again I wandered away, always repelled by the consciousness of having no claim to ask, no right to expect interest in my isolated lot. Meantime, the afternoon advanced while I was thus, while I thus wandered about like a lost and starving dog. Crossing a field, I saw the church spire before me. I hastened towards it. Near the churchyard, in the middle of the garden, stood a well-built, though small house, which I had no doubt was the parsonage. I remember that strangers who arrive at a place where they have no friends and who want employment sometimes apply to the clergyman for introduction and aid. It is the clergyman's function to help, at least with advice, those who wish to help themselves. I seem to have something like a right to seek counsel here. Renewing then my courage and gathering my feeble remains of strength, I pushed on. I reached the house and knocked at the kitchen door. 
An old woman opened. I asked, was this the parsonage? Yes. Was the clergyman in? No. Would he be in soon? No, he was gone from home. To a distance? Not so far, happened three mile. He had been called away by the sudden death of his father. He was at Marsh End now, and would very likely stay than a fortnight longer. Was there any lady of the house? Nay, there was not but her, and she was the housekeeper. And of her, reader, I could not bear to ask the relief for want of which I was sinking. Could not yet beg, and again I crawled away. Once more I took off my handkerchief. Once more I thought of the cakes of bread in the little shop. Oh, for but a crust, for but one mouthful to allay the pang of famine. Instinctively I turned my face again to the village. I found the shop again, and I went in, and though others were there besides the woman, I ventured the request. Would she give me a roll for this handkerchief? She looked at me with evident suspicion. Nay, she never sold stuff in that way. Almost desperate, I asked for half a cake. She again refused. How could she tell where I had got the handkerchief, she said. Would she take my gloves? No, what could she do with them? Reader, it is not pleasant to dwell on these details. Some say there is enjoyment in looking back to painful experience past, but at this day, I can scarcely bear to review the times to which I allude, the moral degradation, blent with physical suffering, from too distressing a recollection ever to be willingly dwelt on. I blamed none of these, those who repulsed me. I felt it was what was to be expected, and what could not be helped. An ordinary beggar is frequently an object of suspicion. A well-dressed beggar, inevitably so. To be sure, what I begged was employment, but whose business was it to provide me with employment? Not certainly that of persons who saw me then for the first time and who knew nothing of my character. And as to the woman who would not take my handkerchief in exchange for her bread, why, she was right. If the offer appeared to her sinister or the exchange unprofitable... Let me condense now. I am sick of the subject. All right. A little late for that, Jane. Wish we could have done that last chapter. (laughs) Clearly, she's not sick of dwelling on that memory. A little before dark, I passed a farmhouse, at the open door of which the farmer was sitting, eating his supper of bread and cheese. I stopped and said, Will you give me a piece of bread? For I am very hungry. He cast on me a glance of surprise. But without answering, he cut a thick slice from his loaf and gave it to me. I imagine he did not think I was a beggar, but only an eccentric sort of lady who had taken a fancy to his brown loaf. As soon as I was out of sight of his house, I sat down and ate it. (laughs) This is a weird chapter where she's really ascribing a lot of thoughts to people who are not her. I could not hope to get a lodging under a roof and saw it in the wood I have before alluded to, but my night was wretched, my rest broken, the ground was damp, the air cold, besides, intruders passed near me more than once, and I had again and again to change my quarters, no sense of safety or tranquility befriended me. Towards morning it rained, the whole of the following day was wet. Do not ask me, reader, to give a minute account of that day, as before I sought work, as before I was repulsed, as before I starved. But once did food pass my lips. At the door of a cottage, I saw a little girl about to throw a mess of cold porridge into a pig trough. Will you give me that, I asked. She stared at me. Mother, she exclaimed, there is a woman wants me to give her these porridge. Well, lass, replied a voice within, give it her if she beggar. The pig doesn't want it. The girl emptied the stiffened mold into my hand, and I devoured it ravenously. As the wet twilight deepened, I stopped in a solitary bridal path, which I had been pursuing an hour or more. My strength is quite failing me, I said in soliloquy. 
I feel I cannot go much further. Shall I be an outcast again this night while the rain descends so? Must I lay my head on the cold, drenched ground? I fear I cannot do otherwise, for who will receive me? But it will be very dreadful with this feeling of hunger, faintness, chill, and this sense of desolation, this total prostration of hope. In all likelihood, though, I should die before morning. And why cannot I reconcile myself to the prospect of death? Why do I struggle to retain a valueless life? Because I know or believe Mr. Rochester is still living. And then to die of want and cold is a fate to which nature cannot submit passively. Oh, Providence, sustain me a little longer. Aid, direct me. My glazed eye wandered over the dim and misty landscape. I saw I had strayed far from the village. It was quite out of sight. The very cultivation surrounding it had disappeared. I had, by crossways and byways, once more drawn near the tract of moorland, and now only a few fields, um, almost as wild and unproductive as the heath from which they were scarcely reclaimed, lay between me and the dusky hill. Well, I'd rather die yonder, in a street, or on a frequented road, I reflected, and far better that crows and ravens, if any ravens there be in these regions, should pick my flesh from my bones, than they should be prisoned in a workhouse coffin and molder in a pauper's grave. Fair, same. To the hill, then, I returned. I reached it. It remained- Kind of hurtful to people in workhouses. (laughs) I mean, she and Dickens both agree that the workhouse is not a place that you want to go. Not that Jane's ever seen inside one. Yeah, I'm like, her and Dickens also have that in common. (laughs) (laughs) To the hill then I turned. I reached it. It remained now only to find a hollow where I could lie down and feel at least hidden, if not secure. But all the surface of the waste looked level and showed no variation but of tint. Green where the Russian moss overgrew the marshes, black where the dry solo bore only heath. Dark as it was getting, I could still see these changes, though but as mere alterations of light and shade, for color had faded with daylight. My eye still roved over the sullen swell and along the moor edge, vanishing amidst the wildest scenery, when at one dim point far in among the marshes and the ridges, a light sprang up. That is an ignis foutus, was my first thought, and I expected it would soon vanish. It burnt on, however, quite steadily, neither receding nor advancing. Is it then a bonfire just kindled, I questioned. I watched to see whether it would spread, but no, it did not diminish, so it did not enlarge. May be a candle in a house, I then conjectured, but if so, I can never reach it. It is much too far, and were it within a yard of me, what would it avail? I should but knock at the door and have it shut in my face. I sank down where I stood and hid my face against the ground. I lay still a while. The night wind swept over the hill and over me and died moaning in the distance. The rain fell fast, wetting me afresh to the skin. Could I but have stiffened to the still frost, the friendly numbness of death? It might have pelted on. I should not have felt it, but my yet living flesh shuddered to its chilling influence. I rose ere long. The light was yet there, shining dim but constant through the rain. I tried to walk again. I dragged my exhausted limbs slowly towards it. It led me me aslant over the hill through a wide bog, which would have been impassable in winter and was splashy and shaking even now in the height of summer. There I fell twice, but as often I rose and rallied my faculties. This light was my forlorn hope. I must gain it. Having crossed the marsh, 
I saw a trace of white over the moor. I approached it. It was a road or a track. It led straight up to the light, which now beamed from a sort of knoll amidst a clump of trees. Furs, apparently, from what I could distinguish of the character of their forms and foliage through the gloom. My star vanished as I drew near. Some obstacle had intervened between me and it. I put out my hand to feel the dark mass before me. I discriminated the rough stones of a low wall, above it something like palisades, and within a high and prickly hedge. I groped on. Again, a whitish object gleamed before me. It was a gate, a wicket. It moved on hinges as I touched it. On each side stood a sable bush, holly and yew. Entering the gate and passing the shrubs, the silhouette of a house rose to view. Black, low, and rather long, but the guiding light shone nowhere. All was obscurity. Were the inmates retired to rest? I feared it must be so. And seeking the door, I turned an angle. There shot out the friendly gleam again from the lozenged panes of a very small lattice window within a foot of the ground, made still smaller by the growth of ivy or some other creeping plant whose leaves clustered thick over the portion of the house wall in which it was set. The aperture was so screened and narrow that curtain or shutter had been deemed unnecessary, and when I stooped down and put aside the spray of foliage shooting over it, I could see all within. I could see a, a clearly a room with a sanded floor, clean scoured, a dresser of walnut, how do you know it's walnut, with pewter plates ranged in rows, reflecting the redness and radiance of a glowing peat fire. I could see a clock, a white deal, a white deal table, some chairs, the candle, whose ray had been my beacon, burnt on the table, and by its light, an elderly woman, somewhat rough-looking, but scrupulously clean, like all about her, was knitting a stocking. It's a lot of details that she's peeking through. I noticed these objects curiously only in them. There was nothing extraordinary. A group of more interest appeared near the hearth, sitting still amidst the rosy peace and warmth suffusing it. Two young, graceful women, ladies in every point, sat one in a low rocking chair, the other on a lower stool. Both wore deep mourning of crepe and bombazine, which somber garb singularly set off very fair necks and faces. A large old pointer dog rested its massive head on the knee of one girl, and the lap of the other was cushioned a black cat. A strange place was this humble kitchen for such occupants. Who were they? They could not be the daughters of the elderly person at the table, for she looked like a rustic, and they were all delicacy and cultivation. I had nowhere seen such faces as theirs, and yet, as I gazed on them, I seemed intimate with every liniment. I cannot call them handsome. They were too pale and grave for the word. As they each bent over a book, they looked thoughtful, almost to severity. A stand between them supported a second candle and two great volumes to which they frequently referred, comparing them seemingly with the smaller books they held in their hands, like people consulting a dictionary to aid them in the task of translation. This scene was as silent as if all the figures had been shadows and the fire-lit apartment a picture. So hushed was it. I could hear the cinders fall from the grate, the clock tick in its obscure corner, and I even fancied I could distinguish the click-click of the woman's knitting needles. When therefore a voice broke the strange stillness at last, it was audible enough to me. Listen, Diana, said one of the absorbed students, Franz and old Daniel are together in the nighttime, and Franz is telling a dream from which he has wakened in terror. Listen! And in a low voice she read something, of which not one word was intelligible to me, for it was an unknown tongue, neither French nor Latin. Whether it was Greek or German, I could not tell. 
This is strong, she said when she had finished. I relish it. The, the other girl who had lifted her head to listen to her sister repeated while she gazed at the fire a line of what had been read. At a later day, I knew the language in the book. Therefore, I will here quote the line, though when I first heard it, it was only like a stroke on sounding brass to me, conveying no meaning. The trat hervor anir, and Susan we die sternen nacht. Good, good, she exclaimed, while her dark and deep eye sparkled. There you have a dim and mighty archangel fitly set before you. The line is worth a hundred pages of Faustian. Ikwag dai gedeken in der shell mein zornen und die work met dem geiwicht meins grin. I like it. Both were again silent. Sir own country where they talk in that way asked the old woman looking up from her knitting yes hannah a far larger country than england where they talk in no other way well for sure case i know and how they can understand oh it's in no well for sure case i know and how they can understand to one to the other and if either you want there you could tell what they said i guess we could probably tell something of what they said, but not all, for we are not as clever as you think us, Hannah. We don't speak German, and we cannot read it without a dictionary to help us. What good does it do you? You mean to teach it in some time, or at least the elements, as they say, and then we shall get more money than we do now. Very like, but give over your studying. You've done enough for tonight. I think we have. At least I'm tired. Mary, are you? mortally after all it's tough work pegging away at a language with no master but a lexicon it is especially such a language as this crabbed but glorious dutch i wonder when saint john will come home truly he will not be long now it is just 10 looking at a little gold watch she drew from her girdle it rains fast hannah will you have the goodness to look at the fire in the parlor the woman rose. She opened a door for, through which I dimly saw a passage. Soon I heard her stir a fire in the inner room. She presently came back. Ah, childer, said she. It fair troubles me to go into the yond room now. It looks so lonesome with the chair empty and set back in the corner. She wiped her eyes with her apron. The two girls' grave before looked sad now. But he is in a better place, continued Hannah. He wouldn't wish him here again. And then nobody need to have a quieter death, nor he had. You say he never mentioned us, inquired one of the ladies. He hadn't time, Baron. He was gone in a minute, was your father. He had been a bit ailing like the day before, but not to signify. And when Mr. St. John asked if he would like either you to be sent for, he fair laughed at him. He began again with a bit of a heaviness in his head the next day, that is, a fortnight sin. And he went to sleep and never wakened. He wore almost... Almost stark when your brother went into the chamber, found him. Ah, childer, that's to the last, the old stock for ye. And Mr. St. John is like a different sort to them. It's gone. For all your mother wore Mitch in your way. And I must like a book learned. She were the picture of ye, Mary. Diana's more like your father. I thought them so similar, I could not tell where the old servant, for such I now concluded her to be, saw the difference, but were fair complexioned and slenderly made both possessed faces full of distinction and intelligence one to be sure had hair a shade darker than the other and there was a difference in their style of wearing it mary's pale brown locks were parted and braided smooth diana's duskier tresses covered her neck with thick curls the clock struck ten you'll want your supper i'm sure observed hannah and so will mr st john when he comes in 
She proceeded to prepare the meal. The ladies rose. They seemed about to withdraw to a parlor. Till this moment, I had been so intent on watching them. Their appearance and conversation had excited in me so keen an interest. I had half forgot my own wretched position. Now it reoccurred to me. More desolate, more desperate than ever, it seemed from contrast, and how impossible did it appear to touch the inmates of this house with concern on my behalf, to make them believe in the truth of my wants and woes, to induce them to vouchsafe a rest for my wanderings. As I groped out the door and knocked at it hesitatingly, I felt the last idea to be a mere chimera. Hannah opened. "'What do you want?' she inquired in a voice of surprise as she surveyed me by the light of the candle she held." May I speak to me, mistresses, I said. You'd better tell me what you have to say to them. Where do you come from? I'm a stranger. What is your business at this hour? I want a night's shelter in an outhouse or anywhere and a morsel of bread to eat. Distrust, the very feeling I dreaded, appeared in Hannah's face. I'll give you a piece of bread, she said after a pause. But we can't take in a vagrant to lodge. It isn't likely. Do let me speak to your mistresses. No, not I. What can they do for you? You should not be roving about now. It looks very ill. But where shall I go if you drive me away? What shall I do? Oh, I'll worry. You know where to go and what to do. Mind you, don't do wrong. That's all. Here is a penny. Now go. A penny cannot feed me. I have no strength to go further. Don't shut the door. Oh, don't, for God's sake. I must. The rain is driving in. Tell the young ladies. Let me see them. Indeed, I will not. You are not what you ought to be, or you wouldn't make such a noise. Move, move off. But I must die if I am turned away. Not you. I'm feared you have some ill plans agate that bring you about folks' houses at this time of night. If you've any followers, housebreakers or such, like anywhere near, you can tell them we are not by ourselves in the house. We have a gentleman and dogs and guns. Here the honest but inflexible servant clapped the door to and bolted it within. This was the climax. A pang of exquisite suffering, a throw of true despair, rent and heaved my heart, worn out, indeed I was, not another step could I stir. I sank on the wet doorstep, I groaned, I wrung my hands, I wept in utter anguish. Oh, this specter of death. Oh, this last hour approaching in such horror. Alas, this isolation, this banishment from my kind, not only the anchor of hope, but the footing and fortitude was gone, at least for a moment. But the last I soon endeavored to regain, I can but die, I said, but I believe in God. Let me try to wait his will in silence. These words I not only thought, but uttered, and thrusting back all my misery into my heart, I made an effort to compel it to remain there, dumb and still. All men must die, said a voice quiet, close at hand, but all are not condemned to meet a lingering and premature doom, such as yours would be if you perished here of want. Who or what speaks, I asked, terrified at the unexpected sound, and incapable now of deriving from any occurrence a hope of aid. A form was near. What form, the pitch-dark night, and my enfeebled vision prevented me from distinguishing. With a loud, long knock, the newcomer appealed to the door. Is it you, Mr. St. John? cried Hannah. Yes, yes, open quickly. Well, how wet and cold you must be. Such a wild night as it is. Come in. Your sisters are quite uneasy about you, and I believe there are bad folks about. There has been a beggar woman. I declare she's not gone yet. Lay down here. Get up for shame. Move off, I say. Hush, Hannah. I have a word to say to the woman. You have done your duty in excluding. Now let me do mine in admitting her. I was near and listened to you both and her. I think this is a peculiar case. I must at least examine into it. Young woman, rise and pass before me into the house. 
With difficulty, I obeyed him. Presently, I stood within the clean, bright kitchen on the very hearth, trembling, sickening, conscious of an aspect in the last degree, ghastly, wild, and weather-beaten. The two ladies, their brother, Mr. St. John, the old servant, were all gazing at me. St. John, who is it? I heard one ask. I cannot tell. I found her at the door, was the reply. She does look white, said Hannah. As white as clay or death, was responded. She will fall, let her sit. And indeed my head swam. I dropped, but a chair was received me. I still possessed my senses, though just now I could not speak. Perhaps a little water would restore her. Hannah, fetch them. She is worn to nothing. How very thin, how very bloodless. A mere specter. Is she ill or only famished? Famished, I think. Hannah, is that milk? Give it to me. And a piece of bread. Diana. I knew her by the long curls, which I saw drooping between me and the fire as she bent over me. Already such a fangirl. <laughs> I know, right? It's Diana. <laughs> Broke some bread, dipped it in milk, and put it to my lips. Her face was near mine. I saw there was pity in it. I felt sympathy in her hurried breathing. and her simple words, too, the same balm-like emotion spoke. Try to eat. Yes, try, repeated Mary gently, and Mary's hand removed my sodden bonnet and lifted my head. I tasted what they offered me, feebly at first, eagerly soon. Not too much at first, restrain her, said the brother. She's had enough, and he withdrew the cup of milk and the plate of bread. A little more, St. John. Look at the avidity in her eyes. No more at present, sister. Try if she can speak now. Ask her her name. I felt I could speak, and I answered, My name is Jane Elliot. Anxious as ever to avoid discovery, I had before resolved to assume an alias. <laughs> it's in italics. I know. An alias. Alias. And where do you live? Where are your friends? I was silent. Can we send for anyone you know? I shook my head. What account can you give of yourself? Somehow, now that I had once crossed the threshold of this house and... Once was brought face to face with its owners, I felt no longer outcast, vagrant, and disowned by the wide world. I dared to put off the mendicant, to resume my natural manner and character. I began once more to know myself, and when Mr. St. John demanded an account, which at present I was far too weak to render, I said, after a brief pause, Sir, I can give you no details tonight. But what then, said he, do you expect me to do for you? Nothing, I replied. My strength sufficed for but short answers. Diana took the word. Do you mean, she asked, that we have now given you what aid you require, that we may dismiss you to the moor in the rainy night? I looked at her. She had, I thought, a remarkable countenance, instinct both with power and goodness. I took sudden courage. Answering her compassionate gaze with a smile, I said, I will trust you. If I were a masterless and stray dog, I know that you would not turn me from your hearth tonight. As it is, I really have no fear. Do with me and for me as you like, but excuse me from much discourse. My breath is short. I feel a spasm when I speak. All three surveyed me, and all three were silent. Hannah, said Mr. St. John at last, let her sit there at present and ask her no questions. In ten minutes more, give her the remainder of that milk and bread. Mary and Diana, let us go into the parlor and talk the matter over. They withdrew. Very soon, one of the ladies returned. I could not tell which. A kind of pleasant stupor was stealing over me as I sat by the genial fire. In an undertone, she gave me directions. She gave some directions to Hannah. 
Ere long, with a serpent's aid, I contrived to mount a staircase. My dripping clothes were removed. Soon, a warm, dry bed received me. I thanked God, experienced amidst unutterable exhaustion, a glow of grateful joy, and slept. Well, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> it does. Um, so any uh, takeaways from this very, the very plotty chapter, this is really a point A to point B and not in like a real personal growth way. But I think we're, I think it does serve a function in character building to demonstrate exactly how naive Jane is. I agree. Watching her also work through the embarrassment and humiliation aspect of her, conundrum it was also weird the contrast of nature on the first day being a mother and like the ultimate feminine a space of sucker and even some delight Mm -hmm. and as you mentioned while we were reading it she still needs to be among her kind like she keeps referring to human beings as her kind which is weird because like other than mr rochester like none of the people that she's met in her life I mean, Rochester and Helen Burns, I guess, have been her kind. So it's like, she just wants to be among the peoples. Yeah. I also think they're, like, this disintegration of nature as, like, a loving, nurturing mother um, is, I don't know if it's, like, contrasted by the human beings who aren't willing to help her. Because human beings do help her Mm -hmm. eventually. So I don't think that's it. And therefore, my continued theory that this is a critique on romanticism continues, right? Like, the last chapter was basically like a point-by-point takedown of the Byronic hero. And now here we are having a point-by-point takedown about how great nature is. I think what's interesting about that is like, it's great for a night. And then you have to get to the business of living. Jane's very practical. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, you know, spoiler alert, I think it's telling that she's saved by a clergyman mm-hmm. um, from, you know, Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. She was calling, like, you know, referring to almost like, you know, mother of all, god of all. Mm-hmm. Not to be too Darren Aronofsky about the whole thing, but. That is certainly the vibe. All right. Any parting thoughts? That's all of them. That's all. That's it. Oh, thank God. All right. (laughs) Uh, We'll see you next week for chapter... Well, we'll see you eventually for chapter 29. Uh, (laughs) With that. Loosen your chains. But never your heirs. Mwah. Mwah.